All right, well, this morning we are continuing our series of studies on the doctrines of grace, where we are essentially studying the biblical doctrine of salvation as it's accomplished with flawless perfection by our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The essence of what we have been affirming is summed up in the words of Revelation chapter 7 and verse 10, where the Apostle John hears a great multitude of people that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to him. We are examining the wide range of biblical revelation as it relates to our salvation from the power and penalty and eventually the very presence of sin. In studying the doctrine of total depravity, we consider the objects of salvation, men and women, boys and girls, fallen in Adam, separated from God, held captive by Satan, enslaved to sin, blinded by sin, defiled by sin, debilitated by sin, spiritually disabled by sin, dead in sin, unable to submit to God's law, unable to do anything pleasing to God, Romans 8, 7, men and women, boys and girls in love with sin, hostile to God and therefore destined for eternal punishment without defense, without excuse. That was us. These are the recipients of salvation. The Bible portrays man's fallen condition as not merely dire and desperate, but hopeless and helpless. And therefore, if anyone is to be delivered from the hell that sin creates in this life, and then the hell that sin leads to in the next life, God must take the initiative, not merely to provide salvation for us, but to actually accomplish and apply our salvation. And the whole reason we are here this morning celebrating the joy of having the record of our sin blotted out and rejoicing in the hope of heaven is because God, out of sheer mercy and sovereign grace, has taken that initiative and he has chosen to save us by himself, from himself, and for himself in order to glorify the riches of his grace and kindness. We've considered the past few weeks the doctrine of unconditional election as it drips from the pages of the Bible. And we saw how in light of man's dire and desperate and hopeless and helpless condition, God, before the ages began, chose a vast multitude of sin-loving, God-hating rebels whom he would lavish with his grace, lavish with his righteousness, and clothed with his holiness. He foreknew and he predestined a particular group of hell-deserving sinners before time that he might call them and regenerate them and justify them in time and then glorify them at the end of time. The Bible calls these individuals God's elect. Jesus in Matthew 24 referred to them as God's elect. They are referred to as vessels of mercy whom God has prepared beforehand for glory. God chose them not because he foreknew that they would believe in him. That would totally destroy the meaning and the significance of being chosen by God. He chose them because he knew they would never choose him. And in choosing them, he gave them to his son, to be his sheep, to be his bride, to be his church. As we learn in John chapter 6 and John chapter 10. 
Of course, God was under no obligation whatsoever to do any of this. That's one of the things that just stands out in all of this is he was under no obligation to save us. You see, a lot of people argue that, well, God is love and therefore he has to save. No, God is love and he loves himself. He loves his son. He loves his glory. We come into the picture and we turn away from his son. We trample his glory. We spit in the face of his glory. He doesn't have to save us. He's chosen to save us. That's why our salvation is attributed to God's sovereign grace and mercy, because if salvation and forgiveness and heaven were what we deserved, the Bible would have presented God as our debtor who owes us, not as our savior who has chosen to rescue us. Well, in Romans chapter eight, we saw how God's sovereign election of his people before time guarantees their final salvation and glorification at the end of time. Nothing can prevent God's elect from entering into their eternal inheritance because whom he foreknows, he predestines. Whom he predestines, he calls. Whom he calls, he justifies. And those whom he justifies, he glorifies. Nothing can break this golden chain of salvation that is found in Romans chapter 8. Nothing can break this golden chain that begins with God's sovereign election and ends with his people's glorification. That's why Romans 8 ends with Paul saying that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate God's elect from his love for them in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from him. Our election is unconditional in that it isn't based on us meeting or measuring up to any conditions that would move God to love us or choose us. In the words of an old hymn, my Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. Praise God for his electing grace that set into motion a chain of events that would end with a people who, though they deserve to burn forever in the fires of hell, will be welcomed into the all-satisfying presence of Christ and the glories of heaven where God will wipe away every one of their tears and lavish them with the immeasurable riches of his grace for all eternity. Well, as we make our way through the doctrines of grace, or uh, we, we come this morning to consider the death of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the redeeming work of Christ, You see, it follows logically and biblically that if God the Father has chosen some and not all, that's clear from the text, that God the Son came to give his life as a ransom for some and not all. The Son did not come into the world with a different intention from his Father. He came to carry out the work of his Father, the work the Father gave him to do for the very one's the father chose to save. The Bible does not teach that Christ died as a substitutionary sacrifice that is in the literal place of everyone who has ever lived or ever will live. His death is limited, not in its power to save, but in its extent. You see, in one way or another, everyone limits the death of Christ in some way. Everyone does. Some say that Christ died in the place of everyone who will ever live, but because not everyone will be saved, they 
inevitably limit the power and efficacy of his death. He died for all, but there's people going to hell. You limit its power. On the other hand, some say that Christ died in the place of all whom the Father chose and gave to him, and they will most certainly be saved, and thus they limit the extent of his death. Perhaps a better word or phrase than limited atonement is definite atonement because the atonement of Christ was for a definite group of people. I think the best phrase that captures this is particular redemption because it insists that Christ's redeeming work on the cross was for a particular group of people whom the Bible refers to as God's elect, those whom the Father chose and gave to the Son. So this will be somewhat of an introductory message today to the doctrine of particular redemption, where we want to consider the heart of the matter and why it actually matters. My hope is that if you're here and you're wondering if the extent of Christ's death really matters, that by the end of the message and over the course of the next few weeks, you'll walk away convinced that this matter is of huge importance. Throughout the history of the church, there are essentially two views regarding the death of God the Son. First, there are those who believe in a universal atonement, an unlimited atonement. They insist that Christ died for all people who have ever lived and ever will live. Pharaoh, Judas, Caiaphas, Annas, proponents of a universal atonement don't actually believe that all people will be saved, but simply that Christ died for all people in order to give them a chance to be saved. They believe that Christ died in order to make salvation possible or available to all people. They insist that his death opened up the possibility for all people to be saved. He died to provide salvation to any and all who would choose to accept it. That's the first group. And then secondly, there are those who hold to a particular redemption that Christ died for all those and only those whom the father chose and gave to him. Proponents of a limited atonement or a particular redemption believe that Christ died not just to make salvation possible for all people without exception, but to make salvation actual for particular individuals. In other words, he died not just to make us savable, but to actually save us. In other words, not to make us reconcilable, but to actually reconcile his people, his death accomplished something it didn't just open up possibilities his death actually accomplished something for his people as matthew 121 says his name would be called jesus why for he will save his people from their sins it's a particular redemption that actually liberates god's elect his chosen ones from bondage to sin and satan that's the heart of the matter and of course both sides have their proof texts, right? Universalists typically like to quote all the world passages, the whole world, all passages, you know, the all. They'll say, well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That settles it. First Timothy 2, 6, he gave himself a ransom for all, a ransom for all. And they'll say all means all. So stop trying to force your theological system upon the plain reading of the Bible. What they fail to see is that all doesn't always mean all without exception. Here's an example. Mark chapter one, verse five 
says of John the Baptist, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So were all the inhabitants of Jerusalem being baptized by John? It says all of them. After all, all means all without exception. Well, then Luke 7 verse 30 comes into the picture and tells us that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Certainly these Pharisees and lawyers lived in Judea and Jerusalem. Mark says all the people from Judea and Jerusalem were being baptized by John. Luke says the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the baptism of John. So either we have a contradiction in Holy Scripture or we have a clear example that the word all doesn't always mean all without exception. And so we can't just take the word all as self-interpreting. We have to interpret that word in light of the rest of the Bible's teaching on the nature and the design of Christ's atoning death. We can't just take the word world and assume that the biblical writers are referring to all people without exception. For example, in Romans chapter 11, verse 12, Paul the apostle uses the word world as a synonym for the Gentiles. He says, now if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, That's the context. How much more will their full inclusion be? The word world was often used to refer to everything and anything outside of Israel, the borders of Israel, the Gentile nations, the people from all tribes and languages around the world. Not the way we use it in America, the whole wide world, right? Refer to the Gentile nations to the ends of the earth. At the end of this series on particular redemption, we're going to consider these world passages and the all passages and how to understand them in light of Christ's redeeming work on behalf of his chosen people. Here's what I don't want you to do and what I don't want to engage in. We don't want to get involved in a game of proof text volleyball, right? For, you know, well, somebody on this side says, well, 1 Timothy 2.6 says he gave himself a ransom for all. And then the other guys on the other side of the net will quote Matthew 20, 28 says he gave his life as a ransom for many. And we just engage in this on ending game of proof text volleyball. One side says he gave himself for all. The other says, well, the Bible says he gave himself for many. And we keep going, keep going, going, gets us nowhere, ends up just frustrating people. You know, in the game of chess, we call that a stalemate. Back and forth, back and forth. The conversation goes nowhere leads to frustration. Sadly, it leads to division. And like in the game of chess, discussions about the extent of Christ's death reach a stalemate. No one can move. And if you make a move, you're put in check by the many verses. You know, this guy says all, well, this guy says many. Constantly being put in check. No one can move. You're put in check. The verse says all, verse says many. This verse says for the sheep. This verse says for the world. Well, there's a way to end this game of proof text volleyball. There's a way biblically to break the stalemate. And you do that not by focusing too narrowly on passages dealing with the extent of his death, but by focusing in and diving deep into passages dealing with both the design and nature of the atonement. Let me explain what I mean. In other words, if we move beyond the question, for whom did Christ actually die? 
to questions like, what was the triune God's intention for the death of God the Son? What did he actually intend to accomplish? What did the Father actually send the Son to accomplish? Was the triune God's purpose to make salvation possible for everyone, or was it to actually save a people for his own possession? Was the Father's purpose to make sinners savable and reconcilable, or to actually, as Romans 5 says, to reconcile sinners by the death of his Son? That's the question. What did the cross actually accomplish? What, what does it mean that Christ gave himself as a ransom, a, 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 a payment? What does it mean that Christ actually took the place of sinners? What does it mean for him to die as a propitiation? You see, you break the stalemate by focusing on God's actual intention for the cross of Christ. And by understanding the nature of Christ's death as a substitutionary sacrifice, as a ransom paid to release captives as a propitiation that satisfies the wrath of God, as a work of reconciliation that actually reconciles people to God versus just making them reconcilable. You end the game of proof text volleyball by considering not just the nature and the design of the atonement, but also the designer of the atonement, our triune God. It comes down to this. Is God the Father out to save as many people as he can? We know that's not the case because that would wipe out the biblical doctrine of election. We see in Romans chapter 8 very clearly, he's foreknown and he's chosen a people and they will be saved and not everyone's saved. Is the father out to save as many people as he can? Has the son come to save as many people as he can? Even though he knows that the father has already chosen a people and has given them to the son. Did he come with a separate mission from the father? Is the Trinity united in their saving purpose? Is the Holy Spirit actively trying to regenerate more people than the Father chose and gave to the Son? These matters have to be considered. In thinking through the extent of the atonement, we have to consider the big picture of God's saving purposes. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that he is the propitiation for our sins And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And someone will say, see, it says the whole world. But John also says propitiation. Propitiation. And the word propitiation does not mean possible propitiation, hypothetical propitiation, or potential propitiation. But the actual and effective satisfaction of God's wrath. That's what propitiation means. So if world means all people without exception, then what this verse is telling us is that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on the cross for all people without exception, and therefore no one will experience God's wrath in hell. But we know that's not the case. The scope of Christ's death needs to be interpreted in light of the scheme of Christ's death, the design behind it, what it actually accomplished. The extent of the atonement needs to be interpreted in light of its intent and what it actually accomplished. So why should we care? I'll just give you three reasons this morning. But I want to give you some negative reasons. First, it's not to bring unnecessary division to the body of Christ. A lot of people do this, right? Their motive is to divide, to be, you know, its own tribe, 
cause division in the body of Christ. We should care not to be contentious or controversial or to shake people up. We should care not to split theological hairs for the sake of splitting theological hairs. It's not to be an elitist group that sets ourselves apart from others. It's not for us to be able to say, well, Christ didn't die for you. You go over there. We'll be over here. It's not the purpose, guys. Because the truth is, we don't know who Christ died for, even as we don't know who the father chose. We are called to go and preach the gospel to all people everywhere without exception, knowing full well that there are people out there that are chosen by God. They will respond. The spirit of God will awaken them. We know that, but we don't know who they are. So we're called to go to all. It's not to be able to gloat over being able to tell others that Christ didn't die for everyone. That's not why we should care about this subject. The first reason we should care about what the Bible teaches regarding the extent of Christ's death is that sound doctrine matters. Sound doctrine matters. We shun that word today. We shy away from the word doctrine. You know, some people will say, well, I don't need all that doctrine stuff. Just give me Jesus. Just give. You don't have Jesus without doctrine. Because if your Jesus isn't the Jesus being portrayed in the Bible, you're engaged in false doctrine. Doctrine, teaching from the Bible helps us to understand who Christ is. The biblical teaching regarding the death of Christ helps us to understand what he came to accomplish. Sound teaching, sound doctrine matters. It shapes your behavior. What you believe determines how you behave. It's not the other way around. What you believe the truth to be is what shapes your worldview. It shapes the way you love your spouse. It shapes the way you parent your children. It shapes the way you talk to others. It shapes the way you interact with others. Sound doctrine matters. Believing truth matters. Holding fast to the truth matters. There's such thing as error. There's such thing as falsehood. And if we get engage in falsehood or error, that can lead us down a dark, dangerous path. Sound doctrine actually matters. I want you to turn in the scriptures to, let's go to Titus, the book of Titus, towards the end of the New Testament. Titus chapter one. As Paul the Apostle is giving instructions to this man to put into order some of the things in the churches, listen to what he says. In verses five and following, he gives the qualifications for a man who's going to lead God's people, the qualifications of a, a pastor. He is to be the husband of one wife. He's to be above reproach. His children are to be believers and not open to the, the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Well, as we get to verse nine, listen to what a pastor should be able to do. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must hold fast to the scriptures. For what reason? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, the man should know what he's preaching. He should know his Bible. For what purpose? Well, so that he can give instruction in sound doctrine. In other words, 
This is all I have to preach. I don't have anything else. The treasure chest, the toolkit, it's all here. And if a man stands up and he's given you everything other than Bible, you need to run. You need to run. He should hold fast to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And also to rebuke those who contradict it, to be able to identify false teaching and say, here's why that's wrong. You see, a lot of people don't like this today. Well, why do we got to be so divisive, we'll say? Why do we got to be so careful around, you know, false teaching? Because God calls us to be careful for false teaching. He calls us to be on guard and not just to call it out, but to actually say, here's why it's contradicting God's word and why it can lead your soul to hell. That's the job of the pastor. Okay, moving forward, look at Titus chapter two, verse one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. Doctrine is just another word for teaching. Teach what accords with sound doctrine healthy doctrine. Verse seven, go down a little bit. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say. Sound doctrine matters, folks. What we think about God's word will shape us shape everything about us. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and on the sound doctrine which you have been following. Sound doctrine nourishes the souls of believers. So again, to be able to, to approach this and be like, well, I don't care for all that doctrine stuff. I just want to hear about God. Well, you hear about God from sound doctrine, from the pages of the Bible. And according to Timothy here, it's what nourishes you. Sound doctrine is meat and potatoes. It's not candy and donuts. It's, it's healthy nourishment that strengthens the Christian, that nourishes the Christian, that actually anchors the Christian so that he knows who he is, why he believes, what he believes. He knows Christ. He knows his Bible. That's the purpose of sound doctrine. It nourishes our souls. It roots us, grounds us in the Bible. It's contrary to today's, so much of what happens in churches is just entertain me, tickle my ears. No, the job of the preacher is to nourish the souls of the people by sound doctrine that is dripping from the pages of the Bible. That's the first reason we should care about this matter is that sound doctrine matters. Secondly, the second reason we should care about what the Bible teaches about the extent of the atonement is that it brings us face to face with the most splendid theme in all of the Bible. Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. To be wrong about the cross is to be wrong about the Bible's central message. And that's a tragedy. There is no greater knowledge than the knowledge of Christ. In him, Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Paul summed up his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, by saying, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We see in Acts chapter 20 that Paul didn't shun to declare the whole counsel of God. And yet when it boiled down to it, he summed up his entire ministry as consisting of Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. You remember in John 17, 3, the very essence of eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is eternal life, knowing Christ, knowing the Father, knowing the Son. That's eternal life. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, eternal life isn't just unending, ongoing, everlasting existence. Jesus defines eternal life as an intimate relationship with the Father and Son. And Christ is known most thoroughly where he is revealed most beautifully in the cross. The cross. We don't just love Christ as the radiance of the Father's glory. We don't just love him as the second person of the Trinity. We love him for who he is and what he has done for us at the cross. We're not after a crossless Christianity. We want a Christianity that is rooted in the redeeming work of God the Son on that cursed tree, that accursed tree. I determined, Paul says, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. One Puritan writes regarding this determination that Paul had. It is as if he should say, it is my stated, settled judgment not a hasty, inconsiderate censure, but the product and issue of my most serious and exquisite inquiries. After I have well weighed the case, turned it round, viewed it exactly on every side, balanced all advantages and disadvantages, pondered all things that are fit to come into consideration about it, this is the result and final determination that all other knowledge, how profitable, how pleasant they may be, is not worthy to be named in the same day with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's why we should care. Because this matter of the extent of Christ's death brings us face to face with Christ and him crucified, the greatest of all knowledge. The greatest of all knowledge. Philippians 3.8 says, all other knowledge in this world is worthless compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Messiah Jesus, our Lord. John Flavel writes again, take away the knowledge of Christ and a Christian is the most sad and melancholy creature in the world. Let Christ but manifest himself and dart the beams of his light into their souls. It will make them kiss the stakes, sing in the flames and shout in the pains of death as men that divide the spoil. Christ and him crucified, that is our nourishment. The gospel is referred to as the word of the cross. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, the word of the cross. You cannot preach the gospel if you do not exalt the glory of the cross, the glorious accomplishments of the cross of Christ. First Corinthians one twenty three. We preach Christ crucified. It determined all that Paul was and all that Paul preached. Not only is the cross 
the defining factor to who the Apostle Paul was. But friends, the cross is the very song of heaven. Let's go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. If we think for one moment that the cross will get old or lose its relevance, all we need to do is have a glimpse of the throne room of God. And for that, we turn to Revelation chapter 5. Verse 1, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Do you see how these angels, you see how heaven defines the cross? A conquest, a victory, not a victim hanging on the cross as his enemies are spitting at him and mocking him. The cross was his victory. He accomplished something at that cross. He has conquered, verse 6, and before the, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain or slaughtered with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Notice the song of heaven is not you made a, you made it possible for them to be saved or you made them ransomable. You made them savable. He says, you, by your blood, actually ransomed people for God, purchased people for God. You didn't just make them purchasable. You purchased them for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Why all the worship? Why all the singing? Why all the crying? Why all the falling down before the throne of God? Because Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. Christ ransoming a people for God. That's why we should care about matters relating to the cross of Christ. Well, our last reason this morning is not just because 
sound doctrine matters. Second reason we should care is it, it brings us face to face with the most splendid theme in all the Bible, Christ and him crucified. But thirdly, the third reason we should care about what the Bible teaches regarding the extent of the atonement is that every Christian should have a passion for the glory of God. And because the cross is the greatest revelation of the glory of God, not only should we be vehemently against any doctrine or any belief that diminishes or detracts from the glory of God, but we should be zealous to know and make known the glory of God as it's revealed supremely in the atoning work of God the Son. Why should we care? Because God's glory is seen, shines the brightest in the cross of Christ. In all that he accomplished on that cross. And we should be against any and every teaching that would ever detract or take away or diminish the glory of God in the face of Christ and him crucified. In the gospel of John, Jesus had this hour in his view. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. And eventually as we get to the climax of John's gospel, we see that this hour is the hour of his glory, the hour of his crucifixion. So this climactic hour is defined by being the hour where his glory would shine the brightest. And yet physically, we know that there was darkness over the land for at least three hours. And yet that was the hour of his glory, the hour of his shining. As he is there naked, dead on that cross, dying on that cross, suspended between heaven and earth, covered with shame, covered with the spit of his enemies, the glory of God has never shined brighter than that. By that, God was building his church, building his kingdom, preparing eternity. Preparing people from every tribe and nation and language, formerly hell-deserving, God-hating sinners who would prefer to be left alone in their idols and in their sin and in their adultery and all of this. He was preparing a people who would come and fall down and be forever satisfied in the presence of his all-satisfying son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he accomplished on the cross, and we should care about this because this is where we come face to face with the glory of God shining most brightly in the sun's most dark, the darkest moment, in his darkest moment. You remember that Jesus said, Father, John 12, 28, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And we know that that hour of which he's speaking is the hour when he's lifted up on the cross. Father, the hour has come, Jesus says in John 17, Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to who? We would expect for the whole world. You've given the son authority over all flesh, all humanity to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He's already looking at the cross as an accomplishment even though he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be taken, falsely tried, falsely accused, 
crucified the next morning, scourged before that, he's already seen as accomplished. When we look at the cross, do we see merely salvation provided? No. We see salvation accomplished. We see mission accomplished. Did he try to save the world and he's failing? No, no. Our God does not fail. He provided salvation by securing our salvation. That's why we should care. Brings us face to face with the glory of God and his accomplishments upon Calvary's tree.